And I think Beth is waiting for you. And uh, for the rest of us who are hanging out in here, turn with me to the book of James. We will be at the last chapter, in the last chapter of the book of James, James chapter 5. And as the kids head off, and as, they, as you are turning your Bibles to James chapter 5, um, I have a bit of a confession to make to you. Um, I promised you the last Sunday that this would be our final week in James. Well, that is not exactly true. Um, next Sunday will indeed be our final book, our final Sunday in, in the book of James. And so my apologies for that. I'm sure that all of you are anxiously awaiting uh, the book of Job. As I am, we will most likely be in the book of Job for a good portion of the semester, uh, one of my favorite books. And so if you like to read ahead, if you like to study ahead, then the book of Job is uh, more, more than likely, unless uh, the Lord really moves, uh, the, the book that we will be. So we will be in James chapter 5, starting in verse 13, and uh, we're going to see this morning how to, how to cope with circumstances. We've been in our current series in the book of James. Uh, how-tos for the Christian life, and we have seen a lot of practical stuff from the book of James. Uh, James is very hands-on, very direct, very practical. Uh, James will continue to be this as he tells us how to cope with life's circumstances. And so we will be again in chapter 5, verse 13. Um, I want to begin by making a statement that I think all of us uh, will acknowledge to be true. And this statement uh, is, it goes something like this. Words can often be misunderstood when taken out of context. Words that we hear can often be misunderstood when taken out of the context in which they were spoken. Uh, A prime example of this is during a political season, during election years. This happens very oftentimes. You you will hear particular candidates um, give speeches, they'll, have, they'll give sound bites, maybe they give an interview, and what almost inevitably happens is they edit and they cut that interview and they give you little bits from this particular candidate, and maybe they paint this candidate in the wrong light, maybe the candidate doesn't like what the newspaper or the interviewee uh, says about them, and so inevitably they say, oh no, that's not what I meant, they're taking me out of... Context, right? They're taking me out of context. This morning, we're going to take a look at a passage that I think can easily be misunderstood when taken out of context. I want to share with you briefly a story. As I was doing my preparations this week, I came across a story uh, that was told by uh, Chuck Swindoll, one of my favorite pastors and preachers. Um, and he tells this story, and I think this story demonstrates the reality of this truth that words can often be misunderstood. Understood uh, when taken out of context. So I'd like to read this story to you. Uh, he writes this I heard of a true story once of a couple who lived in Minneapolis, Minnesota. It was February, and of course, in Minnesota, uh, there in the city of Minneapolis, it was raw and frigid, and so they decided to get away. Uh, they decided to spend a long weekend together, and they determined that their destination would be the Florida Keys, and they would spend a long weekend together on the beach. Now, both uh, husband and wife worked, and so they had to coordinate their schedules to figure out when each of them could go down to Florida. And as it turns out, after looking at their schedule, it, uh, it turns out that the, the, that the husband had to go first. And so they agreed that the husband would fly down the day before and that he would stay in the hotel and that he would await the arrival of his wife uh, the next afternoon. 
And so uh, the man flew from Minneapolis to Florida. Uh, everything went smoothly. He gets to the hotel, and as he gets to the hotel, he pulls out his laptop, knowing that his wife would be hard at work. And he pulls out his laptop, and he sends her, he thinks, an email, uh, just confirming that he got there. But as he typed his, uh, her email into his uh, email account there, he accidentally left off one letter. And as you know that when you leave off one letter from an email, emails tend to not make it there. But this particular email address that he uh, wrongfully he entered in error ended up going somewhere else. He continues to say, in Houston, a widow had just returned from her husband's funeral. He was a minister of many years, faithful to the Lord, and had been called home to glory. And so she was arriving home uh, after the funeral. He had died of a sudden heart attack. And so it had been an extremely difficult circumstance for her. And so as she arrived home, she went and she pulled out her laptop and she entered into her email address. And she anticipated receiving condolences uh, from family and from friends. And she pulled up her email and it says, you've got mail. If she has AOL, I don't know what she has, but she pulled up her email and she clicked to, uh, to open an, an, an unusual email that she received. And she opened this email and upon reading the email, she fainted and she hit the floor. Of course, her son was there and so he ran in to check on her and he, uh, after helping her up, read the message that she read and the message read something like this, to my loving wife. From your departed husband. Subject, I've arrived. I, I've just arrived and have been checked in. Everything went smoothly after my departure. I also verified that everything has been prepared for your arrival tomorrow. <laughs> Looking forward to seeing you then. I hope your journey will be as uneventful as mine was. P.S. It sure is hot down here. <laughs> and she faints to the ground. Um, hilarious story, and it illustrates the point that when we take words out of context, they can be easily misunderstood. Our, our text today in James chapter 5, verses 13 and 15, is a difficult text. I won't lie to you. There has been much ink spilt over the interpretation and application of this text, and it is one of those texts that if not taken within the context of James' concluding remarks, I think we can very easily, much like this dear widow, misunderstand and thus misapply this text. And so James this morning is going to tell us how to cope with the circumstances of life. And essentially what James is going to do for these last two sections is in verses 13 through 15, James is going to give us some specific circumstances that we as believers in Jesus Christ can find ourselves in. And so he's going to point out three circumstances that we could possibly find ourselves in. And then he's going to tell us how we're supposed to respond. And so verses 13 through 15 are specific instructions to us, if you will. And then in verses 16 through 20, as we'll see next week, he gives what I will call 
general instructions. That is, that is, he moves from the specific to the general, and he will continue to give us general instructions. And so, if you're taking notes, if you have um, a, a binder from the back, by the way, they're available to take notes. If you want them, they're back at the Welcome Center. Uh, three points this morning, and so if you'd like to take notes, here's a real simple outline. We're going to see three circumstances. Uh, circumstance number one is found at the very beginning of verse 13. Circumstance number one is suffering. He says how to cope with suffering. Circumstance number two is found at the end of verse 13, and I would call that celebration. And so circumstance number one, suffering. Circumstance number two, celebration. Circumstance number three, which is found in verses 14 and 15, I would call sickness. 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 And so we have suffering, celebration, and then sickness. And so he's going to tell us specifically how we respond to each of these. Let's do this. I would like for us to read verses 13 through 20. And so if you have your Bibles, follow along with me. That's the, the text will also be on the screen. And hopefully as we read through the entirety of this section, some of the context will help us, I think, give us some clues to understand what exactly is going on here. Verse 13. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous man, person, has great power as it is working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it may not rain, and for three years and six months it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. He concludes, My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Reading of the word of the Lord. And so, the first circumstance that we find ourselves uh, possibly in that James addresses is, is, is found in verse 13, and that is suffering. Notice what he says. Is anyone among you suffering? Uh, the word here for suffering is really a general term. It, it doesn't specify any particular kind of suffering. It just basically refers to anything that's hard, anything that's difficult uh, that's going on in your life. And so maybe it's suffering at the hands of other people. Maybe it's uh, a, a difficult relationship. Maybe it's circumstance. Um, it, it really is general. And so he, he basically paints a picture and he says, if there's anything wrong, if there's anything not right, if you're undergoing any kind of difficulty as a Christian, notice what he says you should do. Let him pray. Let him pray. And, and so James, I think, begins, uh, ends where he begins. If you remember, way back when, in James chapter 1, we began in our very first sermon with how to tackle trials. You remember that in chapter 1? Essentially, James said, hey, count it all joy, my brothers, when you encounter various trials. And then he goes on to say that it leads to maturity. And then in verse 1, James told us this. If you lack wisdom, then you should ask God for wisdom and he will give it. Generously. That's my 
loose translation. And so James essentially returns to where he began. And he says, if you are suffering, if you're going through a trial of any sorts, then really the primary thing that you need to do is you need to pray. And I think going back to chapter 1, what that means is we pray for wisdom. We pray for strength. We pray for endurance. We pray that God would give us wisdom to allow this trial, this suffering in our life, that we could see it and really have joy in the midst of it. And that we would pray for wisdom, that God would make us more mature, that he would make us more Christ-like in the midst of this trial. And so James simply says, if life is tough, if you're going through suffering, then what you need to do first and foremost is you need to pray. Really simply, you need to pray. And so this morning, maybe you find yourself as a believer in Jesus Christ in this circumstance. Maybe circumstance number one fits you. Maybe James is talking to you. Maybe you would say, yep, there is some suffering going on in my life, whatever that suffering may be. And so if that fits you, then the question that I have to ask myself and that you have to ask yourself is, is the primary thing that you and I are doing involve getting on our knees? Are we praying? Are we responding to hardships by not going outward at other people, by not going inward, uh, shoving other people away? But we need to be going upward. We need to pray. And so I don't know what trial you're facing this morning. It's a, it's a general word. And in a congregation like this, there could be a hundred different trials. And so I don't know what that is, but whatever it is, pray Pray. Go home. Spend more time in prayer. Seek the Lord's face. Seek wisdom. Seek help. Seek grace. Ask for God to change your heart and mind so that you can see how he might want to shape you into the image of Christ through this trial. And so circumstance number one, he says, if you're suffering, then you need to pray. Then you need to pray. Secondly, he goes on, and at the tail end of verse 13, he brings up a second circumstance. And that second circumstance is what I would call celebration. Celebration. Notice, is anyone cheerful? Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. And so James then goes to the opposite end of the spectrum. He's painting a, a, a general picture here. If times are tough, if you're going through hardship and trial, then pray. You need to seek God's face. Then maybe things are good. Maybe life is going well for you. That's the meaning of the word cheerful. It's a simple word. It means to be happy or to be joyful. But what it does is it, it implies that, that there's a favorable circumstance. That is, are you cheerful because life is good? Maybe things are going really well for you. Life is great. And so you need to remember the Lord not only when things are going poorly, but we need to remember the Lord, what James says, is when things are going really well. Notice, let him sing praise. Uh, David's one commentator writes uh, accurately, James then wants us, wants God remembered in all situations. He wants God remembered in all situations, good as well as bad. Notice the response here. It's particular. It's a very specific response. And if you don't pay attention, you may misunderstand what James is saying. He says, let him, notice the verb. What's the verb there, class? Sing. Let him sing praise. He doesn't say, let him praise the Lord. He doesn't say, let him offer a prayer of thanksgiving. He doesn't say, let him do whatever. He, the, the verb here specifically refers to singing. Not just saying, God, thank you so much. God, you're good. God, life is wonderful. Thank you. Yeah, that's good and appropriate, but that's not what James means. What James means is, if life is good, if God has granted you a good day, a good week, a good year, sing. 
That's what he says. Sing. Now, some of you may not be inclined to this like I am. I like singing. I like music. It kind of fits who I am. I enjoy singing. And so it's easy for me to read this and say, yeah, that makes sense. Life is good. I'm going home uh, maybe from a date night with my wife or a good day with my son. And we're listening to the radio. And yeah, I want to sing. Sometimes I just sing just to sing. And so this fits for me, but maybe you're thinking, man, I'm not a, I don't like singing, I'm not a singer, I don't have a good voice. You know, okay, not all of us are bent towards song like everyone else, but that doesn't mean that we're not supposed to obey this commandment. <laughs> if you are a Christian and a believer in Christ, whether you have a very good voice or a very poor voice, what James says is, life is good. Sing. Sing. And so we can do this privately or we can do it corporately. Uh, privately, it can look like a lot of different ways. Maybe you like to sing in the shower. Maybe that's kind of your place. You know, you're in the shower and you sing. Uh, maybe that's a good time to sing a worship song, to sing a hymn, whatever, whatever you like. Sing in the shower. Maybe you um, are a little bit more bold and you just like to sing when the radio comes on. Maybe you're driving to work or driving home and you're listening to Christian music. Maybe that's your time to sing because things are going well. But I think this also means that we can do this corporately. And so what that means is as we gather here on Sunday mornings, we sing songs corporately. I don't know, maybe you find yourself in this second circumstance. Maybe the the week has been wonderful. Maybe the morning has gone really well. Maybe you got a raise. Maybe your kids are actually behaving. Maybe your wife made you something good for breakfast this morning. I don't know. Whatever it is, maybe life is good for you. And so we come, and we gather together corporately, and so if you're not a singer, you don't just sing in the shower or sing when the radio comes on, that's okay. You come here week to week on Sunday mornings, and you sing, and you sing, because life is good. And so I find myself doing this, I think this happens sometimes in our household, we're just doing the dishes, or playing with Asher, or whatever, you know, doing some kind of chore, and from time to time, you'll hear in our household just singing. (laughs) I will be singing. And Shelly sometimes will just be singing. And I know that when Shelly is doing the dishes and she's singing like a praise song, that she's cheerful and that life is good because she's doing dishes, you know, and she's singing praise to the Lord. This is exactly what he's talking about. And so he's, uh, I'm going to challenge you guys to do this. Do this. Sing. Good voice, bad voice, corporately, individually. It doesn't matter. If life is good for you right now or in the future, sing. And so we've covered two circumstances rather quickly. He said, if you're suffering, pray. If you're cheerful, the opposite end of the spectrum, life is good, then the appropriate response is to sing. And now we come to the doozy, to the difficult one. This one is, uh, it's, it's hard. I won't, I won't lie to you. And what I'm going to share with you is how the best I can interpret this. And I think it's, a, it's an accurate interpretation of what's going on. And so stick with me. And uh, when we're done, you can go home and read your commentaries and your Bible study notes. And, you know, you can come and we'll have a really healthy conversation. But this is what I think is going on. And I'm pretty confident about this third circumstance. Verses 14 through 15. I call it the circumstance of sickness. The circumstance of sickness. Um, I, as I, again, as I was preparing, there was a Reader's Digest article that came to mind. Um, I found it uh, a bit interesting. It was written by a guy by the name of David Grimes. And the title of the article is this, What They Say and What They Mean. What they say and what they mean. And he's talking about doctors. And so he says about doctors what they say. It could be one of several things. What they mean. I haven't the foggiest idea. What's wrong with you? <laughs> what they say. Are you sure you haven't had this before? What they mean? Because you've got it again. 
What they say, I'd like to run that test on you one more time. What they mean, the lab lost your blood sample. (laughs) Uh, What they say, insurance should cover most of this. What they really mean, you're going to have to sell your house to cover the rest of it. (laughs) And that's true. Uh, What they say, those pills have really minimal side effects. Uh, What they mean, you may experience sudden hair growth on your palms. Uh, What they say, uh, why don't you go over those symptoms with me just one more time? What they mean, I don't have the foggiest idea of who you are. (laughs) Finally, what they say, there's a lot of this stuff going around. What they mean, and we'll give it a name as soon as we figure out what it is. Um, I don't know if you've ever had that kind of experience. Uh, All joking aside, James here said in verse 14, Is anyone among you sick? Is anyone among you sick? And the word here refers to physical Illness, And so the third circumstance that James address, addresses is that of sickness. But the real question that we have to wrestle with here is, is this. Is he referring to just general sickness? Is he referring to just a common cold? Is he referring just to the sickness that we all get, that I had this week, I've been sick, Michelle's been sick, Asher's been sick? Is he referring just to kind of run-of-the-mill Every sickness that comes as a result of living in a fallen world. Is that what James is addressing? Or is he addressing a more specific type of sickness? Is he addressing a more specific circumstance, a more specific reason for this kind of sickness? And I would suggest the second. What I would suggest to you is that James is talking about what I would call divinely brought about sickness. I think that James is talking here about sickness that is due to sin. I think that James is talking about sickness that is due to rebellion in the life of a believer. I think what James is talking about here is that this kind of sickness, and I think it's not just a cold, I think it's a pretty serious kind of sickness, is a result of God as our perfect Heavenly Father exercising divine discipline on a rebellious Christian on a Christian who is a believer in Jesus but who is running from God, living in sin, living in rebellion, defaming his name, and defaming the Savior who bought him. This is what I believe is going on in this text. And hopefully, as we go through this text, I can show you why I think that is. Uh, The first reason is the context, we're back to the context here, the context of the New Testament as a whole. And so we're going to take just a brief moment here, and I want to read you two or three scriptures that demonstrate that this idea that God uses sickness, and that God might even take a believer home with him in sinful rebellion, is not at all foreign to the New Testament. In fact, it is found several places in the New Testament that this is a very real possibility. And I think that this is what James is talking about. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me real fast to the book, to the book of 1 Corinthians. Uh, it won't be on the screen, but if you have your Bibles, 1 Corinthians chapter 11. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, we find Paul writing to a church that if you're familiar at all with the book of Corinthians and with the Corinthian church, this is like the party church. You know, they are not good. They're sinful. They're rebellious. They're proud. There is all sorts of sin and rebellion in this church. And what we see essentially in in 1 Corinthians 11 is that Paul is giving them instructions about how to take the Lord's Supper. And back then, the Lord's Supper was normally taken in the early church. Uh, It was just a meeting. They would come and they they would eat a regular meal together. And in the context of meeting and dining together, they would then take communion. And, and take the bread, the bread and the wine. But in this 
immature church was not doing this rightly. There was gluttony going on. There was selfishness going on. There was drunkenness going on. And so these early immature believers were not handling the Lord's Supper very well. They were being selfish and sinful. And this apparently was going on for quite some time. Because in chapter 11, verses 29 and 30 is where we're going to look. Paul addresses them, and notice what he says. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment upon himself. Referring to the believers here and what was going on. Notice verse 30. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. And so very early on, my first example is that... This happens. The Lord saw these early believers and caused some of them by by means of divine discipline to get them to repent. He made them ill. He made them sick. And some of them even passed away in their rebellion. Secondly, turn with me a little bit further back to the book of Acts. So turn left in your Bible. Acts chapter 5. You're probably familiar with this text. Uh, Some of you, Acts chapter 5. There's a story in Acts chapter 5 about a, a couple... Uh, two believers, a, a husband and a wife, by the name of Ananias and Sapphira. Maybe you're familiar with that story, but I'll summarize it for you. Essentially what was going on is in the early church, uh, people had needs. Uh, people had come from everywhere to Jerusalem. Pentecost happened, the gospel happened, the early church was formed, and people who didn't live in Jerusalem wanted to stay and become a part of this church. And so people had needs. And so people were selling their land and saying, we're going to give to people who have need. And so Christians were selling their land and giving it to the church. And so Ananias and Sapphira essentially said, we'll do that. We'll sell our land. We're going to give you this much. They sold it. And I don't know exactly what happened. Maybe they got a better price than they thought. I don't know, but they got the money and they thought, we're just going to keep a little bit back, even though we said we're going to give it away. We're going to keep a little bit for ourselves, we're going to lie to Peter, and ultimately the Holy Spirit, and we're just going to give a little bit back, and they go to present this, and I'll read one verse just to get the point across. Chapter 5, verse 5, when Ananias heard these words, that is the rebuke of Peter, he fell down and breathed his last. Stunning. I bet that, uh, you know, when they passed the plates that next week, I bet people gave pretty generously, you know. Um, I bet they didn't do this. Um, But all joking aside, uh, the Lord struck them dead at this moment. Third example, and there are others. Uh, Third example is from the book of John. So turn further to your left in the book, the Gospel of John, John chapter 5. John chapter 5, verse 14. Uh, basically, the context is, is this. John, uh, excuse me, Jesus uh, was doing healing, and he healed uh, what my translation says, an invalid who had been invalid for 30 years. He heals the guy, and notice, notice in verse 14, notice in verse 14 what Jesus said. Jesus found the guy afterwards, and notice what he said. Afterwards, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well. Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. And so Jesus makes it very clear that this guy, his illness was a result of 
sin, I believe. And, and so what I want to paint is the context of the New Testament allows for this interpretation. The context of the New Testament is clear that this is a very real possibility. And so as we go through the, the context of the text, I think maybe we'll begin to see that this is what's going on. But before we move on, I want to make something very clear. You may be thinking, good heavens. God's going to strike me dead. Well, it's possible. God could. But you may be thinking something which is uh, inaccurate, which is all sickness in the world, in the life of a Christian, is due to sin. That's not what James is saying. That's not what the Bible teaches. In fact, one clear illustration is also from the life of Jesus. You don't have to turn there. But in John chapter 9, the disciples ask Jesus. I'll just read the text. Chapter 9, verse 1. Jesus, as he passed by, he saw a man from birth, and his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned? Who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Because their assumption was that all sickness is a result of someone's sin. Notice what Jesus said. Jesus answered, it is not that this man sinned or his parents, but that he, uh, but that the works of God may be displayed in him. And the point that I want to make is that the, te- the New Testament does not teach that all sickness, that all illness is a result of sin. And so you can't look at someone and say, man, you've got a cold. Man, you've got this or that. You must be sinning as a Christian. That's not accurate. But what you can look at someone and say, this is a possibility. This is a possibility. And as we move on, I'll make the point that I think that only a person who has this kind of illness, I think only, this, only the person knows. I think only the person can say definitively, this is divine discipline. So, that's the New Testament context. Let's look at the context of the verses. If you're taking notes, write down a couple things. Basically, what we see is a real simple structure to the text. In verse 14, write down these words, proper response proper response. We see that James will give us three responses. Remember, if is anyone this? Is anyone that? And then how do you respond? Is anyone sick among you? And then he gives us a proper response. Actually, three things. Then, in verse 15, write this. Promised results. Promised results. Because what James gives us is, if is anyone sick? This is what you should do. And if you do these things, this is what will happen. So follow with me, verse 14. And so James says... The first proper result. Is anyone among you sick? Number one, first proper response. Call the elders. Call the elders. Let him call for the elders of the church. Now there's a lot that could be said here. But I want us to know one thing in particular. Who is the one who takes the initiative here? Who is the one who takes the initiative? It's the person who is sick, is it not? And so the person who is sick is to call the elders of the church. And this is significant, I think, for a couple reasons. First, it shows personal responsibility. If you, as a believer, if me, as a Christian, if I find myself in this circumstance, which I believe is a sickness due to sin, God's divine disciplining, disciplining, and we realize it. That's what I'm getting at. They take personal responsibility. They realize this is what is going on. And so they take the initiative and they call the elders of the church. Secondly, I think while maybe not explicit, I think implicit here is that this is a step of repentance. Um, You call the elders of the church in recognition that you have been rebellious, running from the Lord, and that God has brought this upon you as as a source of discipline. And so it's a step of repentance. So you call the elders. Number two, proper response. There's elder prayer. There's elder prayer. And let them, that is the elders, 
plurality of elders, by the way, and let them pray over him. Quick point, and I'll be done with that. Uh, Any time you see eldership in the New Testament, it's always a plurality. That is, there should always be multiple pastor elders. And so what that means is that the church should not be run by the pastor. It shouldn't be run by me primarily. It should be run by plural elders, one of which the pastor should be. More about that later. But you call the elders, and the elders are supposed to pray Pray over him. I think what the elders are to pray for here are a couple things. And we'll see this in verse 15. In fact, uh, turn to verse 15, if you will. I think what the elders are to pray for are two things. Physical healing. They pray for the physical healing of this sick, rebellious person. Number two, they pray for spiritual healing. And we see that in verse 15. The prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And so they pray for physical healing, because this guy or or gal is repentant. Uh, Secondly, spiritual healing. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. So go back to verse 14 with me. So, call the elders of the church. The elders of the church pray. And then, this is the one that gets a lot of press. Anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. I I want you to know that in the Greek, this is a secondary verb. And essentially what that means is that the primary action, the most significant action here is prayer. And then the anointing is secondary. It's less significant. Obviously significant. It's divinely inspired. But it's less significant. It's, It's We're praying, and as we're praying, we anoint. Anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. Now, again, I could go on and on and on and on, and you would be terribly bored. But here's, here's what's going on here, I believe. There are really a couple different things that people believe. First of all, people believe that this is symbolic. That is, you put oil on the person, and it's symbolic of healing. It's symbolic of the power of the Holy Spirit, which is oftentimes in the Old Testament a picture of the Holy Spirit. And so it could be just simply symbolic. That is... It's something external that demonstrates the internal reality of what's going on. I don't believe that that's true, and there's one big reason, a lot of smaller reasons, but I don't think this is that. I would call this a medicinal oil, that is, for the purpose of medicine or comfort or healing. And the reason is, is, the main reason is this. When you look at the word that's translated in your Bible, anointing, there are at least two primary Greek words that is translated anointing. The first one is for um, what I would call ceremonial or symbolic anointing. That Greek word that is almost always symbolic is not used here. There is a second Greek word that is used for medicinal healing. Look, I believe it's Luke 10, uh, but the story in the book of Luke, uh, the, uh, not the proud of the son, of the... Uh, Who's, who's my neighbor? The, the Good Samaritan, right? You know that story. The Samaritan is the neighbor. Remember what he did in that story? He took the guy in and it, he poured oil and wine to cover his wounds. That's the word that's used here. And the word used here for anointing is almost always used for some kind of medicinal purposes. So, to further support, uh, to further support this... Um, Pliny. There's a historian, a Roman historian, during this time by the name of Pliny. And he tells us, along with numerous other sources, that oil was used for comfort and healing uh, in that day. So I'll just give you a few things that, that this non-Christian essentially said oil was used for. 
<laughs> Some of them were interesting. Uh, they were used, first of all, for cleansing and soothing wounds, so external stuff. They were used in baths, both for internal and external ailments. He says they were used for your gums and your teeth. That probably doesn't taste really good. <laughs> I think I'll take my Colgate. Um, they were used for neutralizing poisons. Okay, who knew? Uh, they were used for, in his words, restoring a person's vigor. Uh, they were used, and this is my favorite, as a laxative. So, you know, I'll use it as a laxative. Uh, lastly, they were used for improving vision. The point is simply this. What I think is going on here in this culture is that this person is sick. Oil was used medicinally to provide comfort, to provide, uh, in their minds, a sense of healing. And so I think this is what simply was going on. The elders come, the guy's sick, or the gal's sick, they're hurting, they're repenting, and they provide as much physical comfort as they can to this person while they're praying. I think that is simply what's going on. And so in verse 14, we've seen the proper response. Verse 15, we see promised results. Let's read verse 15 together. What is going to happen if this takes place? Verse 15. A couple things. First, and the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And so the first thing, the first promised result, is that there is physical healing. That's what I believe James is talking about here, physical healing. Secondly, there's spiritual healing, spiritual renewal, if you will. Notice, and if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. So there's the physical, and there's the spiritual. First of all, physical healing. Notice, and the prayer of faith will save him. This word save can mean a lot of different things. But at the core root of what it means to, to be saved, it means to be delivered from something. And most obvious in this context, this person is delivered from their sickness. And so they're healed, they're saved from their illness and maybe even death. Secondly, it says he will raise, the Lord will raise him up. And literally it's the idea of lifting someone up. It can physically mean to lift someone up. And so what I think he's saying is simply that they're raised Back to health. They're sick and they're down on their back and they are raised to health. Something that's very significant in here that I must point out. Verse 15. It says the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick. So I want to ask you this. Whose faith are they talking about? This is pretty significant. Whose faith are they talking about? Okay, well, the prayer of faith. So there's praying, and in praying, it involves a great amount of faith that this is going to happen, that this healing will happen. So who's doing the praying in these verses? It's not the person who is sick, is it? No, it's the elders, right? The elders are called to pray. And so here, it's not the person's faith, it's not the sick person's level of faith that determines whether they will be healed. If anyone needs to have faith here, it's the elders, the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick. Secondarily, notice that even though it's God uses the avenue of prayer, of the elders' prayer in faith, believing that this is what will happen, who is doing the healing here? I mean, who ultimately does it? And the Lord. And the Lord will raise him up. So ultimately, God is the one who does this restoration. So, so there's physical healing. Secondly, there is uh, spiritual healing. Notice, sins, 
He, and, and if he has committed sins, and this is one big reason why I think this is what's going on. It's not just a normal sickness. It's sickness because of sin. James deals with the physical and the spiritual. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. And what, I, what that means is not that you know, Jesus doesn't forgive his sins. No, what it means is in a relational sense that he will be restored back to a healthy relationship with the Lord. Those sins, that rebellion that he had been doing or she had been doing will be forgiven and there will be restoration by this person. Sins causing the illness will be forgiven by God. Before we make a really quick application to this, I want to point out a couple things from the greater context. Notice verse 16. Notice what verse 16 says. This leads me to believe that this is the case. Therefore, and so James is going to make a statement. He's given us this circumstance, I believe, of a sick Christian person who needs to repent and be healed physically and spiritually. So, and this is how you do it. He says, this is how you do it. When you're at that point, when you're that far. And so he makes an application. Therefore. So what are we supposed to do? What are you supposed to do, those of you Christians who may not be in this circumstance? And probably most of us never will be in this circumstance. So, so what do we do? Therefore, confess your sins. We're going to talk about this next week. Confess your sins to one another and pray for one another. Why? That you may be healed. This verb, healed, is almost always used of physical healing. And so, verse 16, I think, uh, buttresses this idea that essentially what James is saying is, hey, if you don't want to get to that point, you better make it a practice of confessing your sins to one another so that you're right with one another, so that you're right with God, so that you can be healed, so that you can maintain your physical health. Because if you don't, if you don't get in the practice of confessing your sins, you could find yourself in the circumstance of 13 through 15. That, I think, is what he's saying. Notice then, skip ahead with me to verse, I believe it's verse 19. Um, let me look here to make sure I'm right. Verse 19. Yeah, my brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth, and he ends his book this way. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth, that is, they stray from the gospel and from the faith, a believer here, and someone, someone else, brings him back, that is, restores him from the sin and the rebellion. Let him know that whoever brings back a sinner... Referring to this believer, I think. Whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering, notice, will save his soul, which can mean life. Soul, life in the Hebrew and in the Old Testament, they're synonymous. Can save his soul from death. And I don't think that's referring to a spiritual death. I think that's referring to physical death, which is a very real possibility, as we've seen from the rest of the New Testament context. And finally, and will cover... A multitude of sins. And so I hope I've made this case. <coughs> Applicationally, I think what this means is that, number one, I don't think that most of us in here who are believers in Christ will ever experience this. I hope I never do. I hope you never do. I think it's uncommon. The majority of us will not, will not experience this. But... The New Testament opens the door and leaves the possibility for a believer who is in rebellion that God may chasten me or you in this way. And so a valid question for you now or maybe in the future and me now and in the future is if I know I'm a believer and I am running from God in rebellion and I want nothing to do with him. And if I am sick, I think in the context here, very sick and not just cold, sick. 
then I think you need to consider that there is a spiritual cause for this kind of illness. And so that's the application. I hope I never face it. I hope you never face it. But there's a reason that James includes this here, and it's because it's a possibility. And so James wants you and I to know, if we ever find ourselves in this circumstance, this is what we do. He gives us the protocol. So in closing, in closing, my prayer and my hope is that as we've seen the context of the New Testament, as we've seen the context of the scripture, which we'll work through a little bit next week, my hope is that we can avoid confusion, we can avoid the misunderstanding that often comes when words uh, are taken out of context. Much like the woman uh, who found herself reading this email from her departed husband and was terribly confused and, and, uh, and you know, in a bad spot. I hope that we can avoid some of that this morning. And so in closing, we're going to do this. We're going to pray, and we're going to sing a song about God's healing. We're going to sing a song about God who is our healer. The one, remember, it's God who does the raising up. And so we're going to sing about that. And so first of all, three circumstances. Number one, you may be suffering this morning. If you find yourself suffering this morning, James says, hit your knees, pray. Secondly, if you find yourself in celebration, life is good, he says, sing, sing. Thirdly, he says, if you find yourself in sickness, as I interpreted here, if you find yourself in this kind of sickness, you then you call me up. <laughs> you call me and you call Jay. And that's what we're going to do. And so let's pray. Let's pray together.